Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Joanna Williams, the author of Women vs. Feminism, Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity, and Consuming Higher Education, Why Learning Can't Be Bought. She's a columnist for Spiked and writes regularly for a number of other publications. She's also the founder of the think tank Kio and director of the Freedom, Democracy, and Victimhood Project at Civitas. Welcome, Joanna Williams, to Savage Minds. How are you? Oh, what to say? Um, <laughs> are you still have, you're still doing homeschooling? Yeah, I think we get a reprieve next week, apparently. On Wednesday, they can go back to school. But who was that genius that decided that we'll just lock everyone up until we figure <laughs> out something better, you know? And my bottom line is these are people who made the decisions who've never done childcare. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> only, you know what I mean? And so when I see like, uh, was it Patel about six weeks ago saying, well, I was voicing the idea that we should close airports. And I'm like, yeah, well, why didn't that happen? You know, like, wouldn't that have been the first thing as we close entries to the country so that at least we stop importing this virus? No, nobody's done it. And I don't think we should be treating this pandemic like musical chairs. And my biggest complaint, Joanne. <laughs> no, go for it. <laughs> How on earth did we arrive at this weird moment in history where I, I swear, like, Am I insane or is the left the most bourgeois reactive class saying, oh, everyone should lock down as long mm -hmm. as we can get our Uber and we can get our Deliveroo. And then it's the more to the right that's thinking more in typical Marxian terms, if I might loosely use that. And I'm thinking, am I in hell? Like whoever would have imagined that we would have seen this kind of, I call it a crisscross of the, almost Hitchcockian way of, you know, strangers on a train, but instead of exchanging murders, they're exchanging politics. And I'm just <laughs> really, I'm just like WTAF all the time because I've been seeing this coming in other ways before the pandemic. And we've seen it with the gender insanity. The real class realities are being completely ignored by the people who heretofore had occupied themselves with looking after this, which would have been left of center in a traditional sense. And then on the other hand, you have the same people on the left abandoning class analysis and historical material analysis for an internal identity. Now, skip back to the 1980s. Like, as you can tell, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm both Canadian and American. And, you know, Jesse Helms ran havoc over freedom of the arts in the States and his whole obsession with Robert Mapplethorpe and black buttocks he went off on that the right was proven wrong in the sense of freedom of expression and art won the day now here we are with the left doing it and the left's doing it far more than jesse helms jesse helms had a few cronies but it wasn't an overwhelming obsession of the republican party to shut down art and i'm just wondering you know if this isn't a continuance of the lockdown on free speech that was happening before the virus and the way in which people have just been unable to have direct discussions about the issues without reverting to ad hominem or to myth and to outright lies. We're not seeing real discussions. We're being told by scientists in an op-ed for science 
that there are more than two genders. It was an op-ed. Yeah. So, you know, that lobby runs with it and says, see, it's in this very important magazine, Nature. And so we can't seem to agree upon the very paradigm of reality upon which we're speaking. I feel like I can only speak to people right of center most of the time these years, simply because even though we might disagree on many things, at least there's the honesty of what would be called a good faith argument. Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And it, none, the problem is none of it seems to really make much sense at all. And I think that's where people do go down the path of conspiracy theories, because um, the conspiracy theory offers you um, at least a, a comprehensible solution uh, or, or um, explanation rather for why we are where we are and the reality of it just being completely inexplicable or, or having no rational thought behind the situation we're in um, is too terrifying to contemplate for lots of people. I've read your articles over the years, so I've, I've really enjoyed them. If, from recently, the issue of education being shut down because of the virus, the way in which education has been used to transmit correct orthodoxy about race and gender, et cetera, et cetera. Can you speak about how this began in your mind, like where, from where you have been sitting the last couple of decades, what have you seen transpire in the UK regarding identity politics and its implantation? So I think one place perhaps that might be useful to start from um, where I disagree perhaps with some other um, commentators who perhaps would also have the label centre-right attached to them, which I hasten to add is not a label I attach to myself, but I know other people put that label on me. Um, centre-right education commentators, particularly people looking at higher education, often seem to suggest that um, the left has been very successful in uh, operating some kind of Gramscian march through the institutions uh, in terms of taking over universities and infiltrating gender studies departments and cultural studies departments. And I actually don't go along with that theory because I think it gives the left far too much credit. It suggests that they uh, had this power, if you like, and they also um, had some intellectual weight behind their arguments and that they um, were able to organise and be coordinated enough to plan this kind of long march through the institutions. I think for me, the problem is that when um, identitarians, if you like, have taken positions in universities, whether that's to promote thinking around critical race theory, critical theory more broadly, uh, gender ideology, the problem is they've, they've every step of the way pushed at an open door. Um, I think it was the traditional, if you like, right wing, although again, I, I wouldn't really use that descriptor, um, but the, the traditional bastions of, of or, or gatekeepers of academia who kind of gave up the game. Um, they lost the capacity to defend knowledge for its own sake um, and to defend academic freedom, to defend the pursuit of, of 
classical scholarship. And um, because that happened, then, like I say, they, they've really opened the door for um, people with all kinds of weird and, and dangerous, really, ideas to take their place in, in universities. And, and I think that is responsible for propagating perhaps some of the ideas that we have today. Although I'd be loath to, again, I, I disagree a little bit with um, perhaps, I'm sure you're familiar with the book, um, Cynical Theories by Pluck Rose and Lindsay. It's a very, very good book and I definitely recommend it. But I guess where I, I disagree ever so slightly with some of the ideas in that book is um, almost the emphasis that's placed on academia as being the source of everything that's bad in the world today. Now, I know that's a massive caricature and I'm really doing the book a disservice there. Um, but I think quite a lot on the left, it becomes easy, if you like, to point to universities as the source of, of all that's gone wrong and all that's bad. And again, I think that lets the broader broader left-wing movements um, and, and the rest of society off the hook. Did you see the left-wing movements that, according to Adolf Reed, and I actually agree with his description of them, but they've become more invested in the managerial class and the workers have been completely absented from these movements or removed. And I saw where you gave a talk about how feminism has become very middle class. And I see those in par because I see both. I see that feminism and a lot of other groups that used to be more embracing of the lower and lower middle classes, you have to look very hard to find that kind of voice within them today. I think that's definitely true. And I think um, that's one of the main um, attractions of identity politics for left-wing intellectuals today. It does completely allow for the abandonment of the working class. You can really justify not having to ever talk to a working class person in your life um, other than to say thank you, I hope, when they turn up at your door with a, a delivery. Um, because you can present, uh, you, you, you can focus upon skin colour, gender, sexuality, all these different identity labels, and um, focus on those as, as the kind of oppressed groups in society, even though the people you end up representing are perhaps some of the most privileged people um, around. So... If you look, for example, at, at some of the discussions of the people who are the leading figures in discussions around um, race and feminism today, I mean, they can be incredibly um, privileged people who've had often the best education that money can buy, um, live in the nicest, biggest houses, and yet they're able to say on the basis of their gender or on the basis of their skin colour uh, to present themselves as being somehow from a, an oppressed and, and marginalised group. And I think you're absolutely right. What it does 
what this does to um, other people, either members of those groups or actually uh, middle class white men who played this game too, um, it allows them to play a very managerial role, again, a very elite, almost colonial, like I would say, managerial role in um, a, a kind of managing the working class in um, keeping them in their place uh, 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 by using identity politics to divide and rule, to, to put it very, very crudely, to um, sort out people, for example, who, who know the correct and the latest terminology to use around race and those who don't, um, to, to separate out those who know the latest thinking around gender ideology and those ignorant plebs who still think that there are two sexes. Um, and this kind of divide and rule game, I mean, this is really what I think universities do give young people nowadays. They give them access to that language, that vocabulary, that way of thinking, so that they in turn can go and, and kind of demarcate themselves from the um, unenlightened working class plebs who are not up to date with all this latest terminology. And now I realize I made a, a great faux pas in forgetting to ask you your pronouns at the beginning of the interview. <laughs> um, but it has become, I spoke to someone the other day who works in a university on the East Coast in the US where it was and is still expected that people must put their pronouns on their signature of their emails lest they get a a request to visit human resources for a talking to. How on earth did we get to the point where businesses, corporations, NGOs, charities, and government agencies are taking over the role of the church in cleansing the soul? How did we get there? Yeah, I mean, a bit like I was saying about universities um, having left the door open, uh, um, going back to the middle of the last century, in effect, uh, having left the door open for um, other people to, critical theorists, for example, to, to walk in and, and do what they like. I think, I think, for me, one of the biggest, biggest problems nowadays is moral cowardice. And I think in charities, NGOs, um, government agencies, schools, sadly, universities, um, the number one attribute uh, of the people who are running these institutions seems to me to be cowardice. And people are so afraid of being called out for being racist or sexist or transphobic or Islamophobic or any of these new labels that we attached to bad people nowadays, people who think the wrong kind of thoughts, um, that they, they acquiesce. I mean, you know, really people who work in a university, if they're told, uh, if you don't display your pronouns, you'll get a telling off from human resources, the correct response to that should be bring it on, you know, come and tell me off, let, let me hear this, what, how exactly are you going to tell me off and, and to laugh in the face of it? even if that means they put their job at risk, sadly. I mean, that's that's what people have to do. People shouldn't go along with it. Um, but we've created this situation where we're separating out the world into, into goodies and baddies, you know, and to use your analogy of religion, you know, there are the sinners um, and there are the good people, the innocent people. And 
obviously these labels are completely bogus and, and meaningless in, in some respects. You know, people who use their pronouns are no more morally pure or, or good than, than people who don't. But because of the moral cowardice of people who run these institutions, we've let these situations develop. And um, then, you know, nobody, until people actually stand up to it, you, you have this problem where um, the more people go along with it, the more weight it seems to carry. And the more you think, well, everybody else is doing this, so I better keep quiet, the harder it becomes to stand up to it. When I was teaching in the UK, I was at Liverpool and Goldsmiths, and I was a bit shocked to see the way universities hire is more and more angling towards a very young professorial cadre. You rarely see, in the States, hiring will be of people in their early 30s, where in the UK, it's zip, zip, zip through the system. And so obviously when you hire new professors and they're extremely young, I know I had to learn what might be called in New York chutzpah by living life, age, hard knocks. You know, we all go through that because it was hard for me. But my first job in New York, I was working at Scholastic. I had a completely exploitative boss uh, in many respects, but I learned to find my voice to say, well, I've been working until midnight for four months. It took time for me basically to push back because it's very easy to ask a 20 year old to work until midnight. I think that's absolutely right. And yeah, definitely. I think that's absolutely right. And, and there's definitely elements of that going on in academia in the UK where you've got um, a really uh, young temporary um, workforce, people on insecure job contracts, uh, PhD students who have the prospect of a full-time academic post kind of held out to them tantalizingly if you jump through all these hoops and obviously the hoops just carry on and on and on and never come to an end. And so you create this situation where people are always uh, desperately trying to be on their best behavior uh, for fear of, of not receiving a permanent job. So I think that's the problem at one end, but then I, I think the, the problem is that that matches um, the moral cowardice, as I was saying, of, of older colleagues. So um, I worked at the University of Kent for over 10 years and um, so to, towards the end of my time there, you would have, um, and I was writing a lot more and outside of my kind of narrow subject area, um, writing stuff more, more journalism and, and more stuff just in the public domain rather than purely academic articles that kind of five people only ever read. And um, I'd begun, just begun, so this is about maybe 2016, 2015, 2016, I began for the first time really engaging with the debate around gender ideology and writing some pieces critical of uh, transgender, uh, transgender activism. Um, and of course, as you can imagine, uh, this didn't go down very well in the university or in society more broadly. So you would have people would write letters um, or emails probably to the university to complain about me. And they would write really spurious things that I was in breach of the Equalities Act, the, the kind of UK 
law, uh, which is, is completely, completely untrue. You know, there was nothing I'd written that was in breach of the Equalities Act. Not that we should worry about breaching the Equalities Act. The Equalities Act is a problem in and of itself. Um, but the point is, people would write these emails. They would write them to the university managers or they would uh, go on Twitter and complain about me and copy in the university's Twitter handle. Um, but the problem for me was that rather than ever laughing off these complaints or treating them with the contempt that most of them deserved or just not taking them seriously, the university took every single one of them deadly seriously. And I'd be called in to speak to my line manager. I would be asked, you know, what on earth have you done? <laughs> Why have you? Um, the, the implication was always that I was kind of bringing the university into disrepute um, and that, uh, you know, students and funders would be put off from supporting the university because of my actions and what I'd done. Now, ultimately, I left the university, so that's how that story ended. But I, I think, and it didn't put me off writing anything, it, it, but what, what did put me off, I guess, was not what anybody was saying, but more just the sheer hassle of having to go through this. It became really a real time drain. If every time you spend two or three hours writing an article, you're then going to spend two or three weeks having to attend meetings to defend what you've written you begin to think this is actually not a good use of my time. Um, but actually, if, if some of these university managers had had a bit more backbone and a bit more integrity to defend their members of staff, um, they could have looked at the vast majority of these spurious complaints and realised that this was a complete waste of everyone's time. You know, you would have either just not even bothered replying or you'd have sent a one line email back saying thank you, but no thank you, we defend our members of staff and their right to academic freedom. Um, but that, like I said, that never, ever happened. And so I think, like I say, you've got two things going on. You've got um, young staff who are very biddable and don't know their rights and are very eager to please. And if that means keeping well below um, the parapet, then that's what they do. And this moral cowardice at the top of institutions um, that, that means that every single spurious um, potential complaint gets taken deadly seriously. And that, that's a real lethal combination for academic freedom or free, free thought of any, any kind whatsoever. I'm thinking, why have journals and publications, academic and non-academic, become so entrenched in preaching the word according to their ilk that there never is a counter voice? There's never some kind of balance in that maybe we should think about this. I give you an mm -hmm. example. I agree that I read the Pluck Rose Lindsay book, but I do have an issue with it. And this is my issue. I think when you start making arch enemy lists of it's Michel Foucault, that you become guilty of misreading Foucault because his whole ethos, I mean, like him or hate him, he was about saying that structure should not be relegating the descriptiveness of mental illness when in fact, this is what we see when we lift off that layer of the onion. 
or we should look at how the body has been used to punish symbolically, you know, the beginning of discipline and punish begins with a drawing and quartering. And of course, he gives a description of each of the limbs being tied to a different horse. As I'm reading this, you're thinking, well, this is an interesting introduction, but you go through all of discipline and punish and Foucault lays it out very clearly that we are prisoners in this panopticon. We don't know if there's a guard looking at us because the panopticon is his model for all of society, like a mosaic of panopticons where we're all spying on each other. Hence, we can call out our neighbor who's breaking lockdown. And he was critical of this. He wasn't saying yeah. this is a good thing. And that's where I disagreed with Lindsay and Pluckrose's book. And then we ran just a week ago, a piece by Heather Brunskill Evans critiquing the book for this very thing. We got some pushback on social media, but, and then skipping to the recent news of Foucault's a pedophile says a 70 year old French American scholar and all the feminists were up in my Twitter feed. And I said, wait a second. The first thing <laughs> I think of when I read this is A, I'm sorry, but the Times did a very bad job. There was no investigation, no questions to him about why were you, if you knew that someone was raping children on top of graves and you knew about this, why didn't you go to the police? But no, no one questions this. It's all about another notch on the chart of, oh, this is why we're right. See, and he's a pedophile. And so this made me think about a lot of what happened since 2018 with the Me Too movement. Yes, Harvey Weinstein, bad man. Yes, the woman who came out and spoke. And yes, one can say, but they're very wealthy women. Why didn't they speak out sooner? Why aren't people bringing this out at the moment? And what the feminists would say, but the patriarchy. Okay. So I sort of want to get at this because it's been bothering me that feminists are happy to critique Foucault. Uh, the vast majority of what I've seen on Twitter, and I got an email from one of our readers, it was very clear that no one's read him. I mean, how can <laughs> your only critique of Foucault be, but he's taught a lot in Europe and neoliberalism, but how does that relate to Foucault? And he, someone wrote me the other day, but he died and he died of AIDS. And I'm like, well, none of this really connects to A, let's separate the artist from the art or the writer from his work. How come people are more obsessed with taking down um, a dead philosopher where there's no victim? I mean, I haven't heard of any victims coming forth about Foucault raping them as children. And why is this now the way that we're debating? Shouldn't we be getting back to reading books? This is my first thought. People are debating stuff on Reddit forums by taking a one line that was extracted from a text and saying, see, He's a pedophile. And then they refer to the 1977 proposal to reform the age of consent laws in France, of which signatories were people like Simone de Beauvoir. So <laughs> there we are, where now the arguments, I mean, I totally am on board with the feminists when they're fighting the gender ideology, but then I begin to wonder, but you're fighting defamation. You're fighting the fact that you can't teach your students without fearing losing your job, that they're going to see that you wrote a blog post about transgender identity erasing woman as a concept, which it is. And at the same point, you're going to start using the same ad hominem arguments, such as, you know, we want to kill transgender people, we want to erase them. Uh, if you've been following what the ACLU has been posting on Twitter, every day, 20 tweets saying, this state, you know, 
Texas, Alabama has removed the rights of transgender children to, to play in sports. When that's not at all what's being said, it's a complete misrepresentation. But I see the misrepresentation on both sides. It, I don't want any man accused of a Me Too thing if there's absolutely A, not a victim, and B, no due process. And I think we're skipping to trial by social media, which is leading to an incredible dumbing down of the discussions that should be taking place. And I don't think that makes me, I mean, I'm not anti-feminist by any means, but I think I believe in the human rights of accused people to have certain evidence brought to the fore. So we're seeing on the one hand, the trans lobby that's taking dead lesbians and saying they were really men because they dressed in a suit and tie. I mean, my God, Frida Kahlo went to the Universidad Autónoma de México dressed as a man so that she could enter into classes. And it wasn't because of any other reason than females accessing universities was just not allowed at the time. And on the other hand, you have feminists saying every man who there's an accusation of it's believe the victim. You've seen that on Twitter, believe the victim. Women are always right. Okay, how do we bring the two together? Because it seems there's a little bit of crazy on both sides. There's a certain willingness to not understand the proof, the evidence, and the, the reality afoot. You know what I mean? No, definitely. I mean, I, I recognize so much of what you're saying. I think um, kind of easy answers to what you've just said uh, is that we live in a culture that's very intellectually lazy, um, that rather than engaging with ideas and actually taking the time and effort to read a book and think about what somebody has written and said, it's obviously far easier just to have a pop at their personality or um, dig up something that they did or said um, 50, 60, 70 years ago and condemn them from that. And yeah, you're right, we're seeing it most recently with Foucault, but with Philip Roth. And um, I think, like I say, you can condemn that for being intellectually lazy, um, but I think there's also, um, a, a real um, loathing of heroes nowadays. You know, anybody who um, sets themselves, not sets themselves up, but anybody who is presented as being um, a figure worthy of emulation, if you like, somebody who has um, either done something successful, be that intellectually or, or from a, a sporting arena or an artistic arena. It's like we almost can't let people have heroes anymore or even role models anymore. And, um, you know, as a mother, I worry about this a lot with particularly with my, my daughter's 14. And you can see almost in the past few years how her bedroom walls have changed. Um, and there are various people who she would have had posters up, various pop groups or, um, I don't know, famous people who she would have had pictures uh, displayed on her bedroom wall. And kind of overnight, then these pictures disappear and get replaced. And I'll say, oh, what about that group that I spent a lot of money buying you T-shirt and poster and uh, concert tickets to go and see? Oh, no, you know, look absolutely terrified. And we don't talk about that anymore. That, that person's been cancelled. And there comes a point where you think these poor kids are not allowed to have any heroes or role models. You know, everybody 
has something that makes them cancelable. And I think that's that really says something about the kind of society that we live in. But I think there's also when it comes to to kind of feminism and the Me Too and, and where you would tie together um, the the arguments around Me Too perhaps with some of the worst aspects of the trans movement. I think, you know, to go back to the question that you're asking right at the beginning about um, basically how how has this happened? How have we got a situation where um, we have institutions that now um, kowtow to the worst aspects of identity politics? And I kind of mentioned moral cowardice, but I think there's something even bigger than that. And this is, again, it's not something that necessarily comes from academia. It's not even necessarily something that comes directly from politics, but it, it's something about our culture, uh, the culture that we all um, swim in in the Western world. And I think there's been a, a major cultural shift that probably began um, even about 100 years ago and is it has really accelerated and um, kicked off over the past kind of probably about 40, 50 years. And that's a shift towards, I think, what can best be described as a victimhood culture, a culture that doesn't venerate heroes or achievement or um, accomplishment, but, but venerates suffering and vulnerability and victimhood. And I think we see this in, in so many aspects of life nowadays. Um, and I think it, it definitely characterizes so much of feminism nowadays, where you can have women who are um, doing very, very successfully, doing very, very well in life, but gain status and um, kudos, if you like, not from their achievements, which is a real shame because many of these women do have real achievements, things they should be very, very proud of having accomplished but they don't seek status off the basis of their achievements. They seek status off the basis of their suffering. So whether that's because they find out, you know, they're being paid slightly less than a man, or, um, you know, somebody once said something terrible to them whilst they were standing at a bus stop, or somebody wants to touch their knee in a restaurant. I'm being flippant, obviously, and I'm not suggesting for one second that there aren't far worse things that have happened to women. Um, but there's this desperate search, it seems, sometimes for victimhood. And, and I find it um, morally distasteful. I don't think there's anything terribly edifying um, or uplifting about displaying your vulnerabilities and, and desperately scrabbling around for claims to victimhood and putting your vulnerabilities on public display at every opportunity. Personally, I just find something, like I said, a bit morally distasteful and a bit unedifying about doing that. But, but it causes all kinds of other problems as well. It soon descends into a competition. People outdo each other. And this is where you have this kind of battle, if you like, which, again, I, I just find, although I really support gender critical feminists um, and support them a lot more than non-gender critical feminists, Again, I find it slightly unedifying sometimes when it seems to um, almost reduce into a competition of, of suffering. Um, I think it should be possible to criticize the um, trans activists without necessarily having to claim that you, you as a woman are the bigger victim because you're more abused, more um, 
suffering from harassment, um, you know, without proclaiming, without just descending into this competition of victimhood. And, and sometimes it can appear like that. We've seen it a lot, I think, in the past um, few weeks in this country. Um, I'm sure you've heard about it. There's this tragic, um, killing tragic, but, but fortunately incredibly rare uh, murder of a young woman in London, a woman called Sarah Everard, who was um, just murdered by a stranger on the street. It, it seems, I mean, we have to say alleged at this at this stage. I mean, definitely killed, but but the exact circumstances and what exactly happened, um, we're still there's still a lot that's uncertain about that. But oh, what happened with that news story is. Um, at shocking speed, it stopped being anything about this, this beautiful young woman and her life. And instead, it just became an opportunity for seemingly for women everywhere to um, come up with their own stories, which obviously, you know, clearly, and thank God, these women hadn't been murdered. They were very much alive to tell their stories. And so you end up reducing, in effect, this horrible story of a woman who's been murdered it ends up becoming equated, like I say, to women who have been winked at, who've had horrible comments shouted at them in the street, perhaps, who've been inappropriately touched. None of none of them nice whatsoever. I'm not for one second saying these are either nice things or even things that necessarily we might just want to brush off. Um, but they're clearly not murder, thank God. And so then what you you this is then carried on and carried on over weeks and, um, you know, is, is now branching out into schoolgirls with with lots of schoolgirls taking to a website called Everyone's Invited to to share. And again, sometimes quite shocking, horrible stories about bad things that have happened to them at the hands of, of boys in school. But I think I think there's. So only so much to be gained from perpetuating this message and telling particularly young women, particularly teenage girls, that you're a victim and that your your status in life comes from um, your claims to victimhood, which is not to say just, oh, suck it up, but actually to say, you know, it, it's a far better life if your self-worth comes from what you've achieved rather than from what you've suffered. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. In the wake of the Everard murder, there were the protests and there were the protests about the protest being handled in the way that the, the police handled it. I joined several Reclaim the Street groups on Facebook. <laughs> and Joanna, it will not surprise you to learn that I have been banned from commenting until 15 April in one group because I made the sin of pointing out there was a post made to ask us to voice our opinions about men being in the group. And there were many men in the group. And I said, well, that's, if we're going to have men in the group, that's fine. But I think we need to start accepting that the transgender identified men in the group are men in the group, because I find it very frustrating. I'm reading through the post daily here, 
And there are so many trans activists in this group who are trying to shut women down and claim that they are really women. So what I see is this kind of escapism and it's, it's let me see maybe the underbelly of the transgender ethos, which is by males specifically to subvert their reality of being part of rape, what the feminists will call rape culture of oppression of, of, of machismo, I guess in the 70s it might have been called, but of this kind of toxic masculinity, uh, putting that in quotes as well, that the feminists allege. And their escape hatch is, but I'm a woman. And we've seen yeah. this all over social media for the last five years daily. So on the one hand, the devastating report you have within British schools show that an enormous number of girls have been harassed in schools. Then there's the UN Women uh, Survey published on March 10th that found almost all young women in the UK have experienced sexual harassment and most don't believe it gets dealt with. A poll of over 1,000 women conducted through YouGov found that 97% of women aged 18 to 24 revealed that they had faced harassment, 80% of which took place in public or the very recent publication of the 5,800 anonymous testimonials is probably more now, cataloging acts of sexual harassment, abuse and assault in UK schools that have been posted on Everyone's Invited. Skip back then to the you know, 2018 events of Me Too that saw all of the horrendous testimonies made by women who were even raped by Harvey Weinstein. In the aftermath of that, we saw the Kevin Spacey accusations. Then we saw how a bad date gone wrong. I'm referring to the American comedian Aziz Ansari, who was accused of sexual assault. And so I have to wonder if a date gone wrong, and it does not seem to have been raped by any sense, is now portrayed as sexual assault and everything like you've just said, the murder of Everard has been, oh, but I too was sexually touched on a bus. Yeah. I was speaking also recently with a philosopher from the States, Jason Hill, who said, we need to distinguish between real oppression and all this other stuff that's not at all that. And he was referring to the trans movement at that point. But I think we really have been caught up in this politics of victimhood such that the minute someone is killed or raped, then that becomes about me. And I've seen this before. I was doing research in New York mm -hmm. in the years following 9-11. I was working with the families of many of the people killed in the Twin Towers. And several of them said to me, and I was dealing with them one-on-one, -on -one, so this wasn't a group consensus, but individually it came to me by many of the subjects I was dealing with that they felt that it was very strange how everyone in New York somehow was a victim and they hadn't lost anyone in the, in the terrorist attacks. It's the way that we clasp victimhood and we make it about ourselves. Everything's about ourselves. And it seems to me that we're living in a narcissistic moment of our society where we're not allowing people to have their pain and they're moving out of their pain. And we've all had tragedies, uh, not to say that my tragedy will be the same as someone else's, but part of living is struggling to, in a way, not to cheapen tragedy, but to make lemonade out of the lemons, if you catch me, <laughs> you know? It's, it's almost as if no. we are perceiving our entire subjective value based on 
how well we can evoke our victimhood, be accepted within society because of that victimhood, and our entire ethos, psychologically, on, on the level of friendship and family and community is now based on how much we suffer, not what do you think about that film, not being afraid to say you liked or disliked it because you might disappoint the person who's asked you the question. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think um, not only is it incredibly narcissistic and, and makes everything about you, but I think the problem is, um, in the long run, it's absolutely debilitating. It's debilitating politically and it's debilitating personally. And I think the Aziz Ansari story is a really, really good illustration um, as to how exactly this victimhood culture for um, privileged young women, um, how it becomes so incredibly debilitating. So I remember reading this lengthy piece. I, um, I can't remember the woman. I know she had a pseudonym and I'm afraid I can't remember what, what pseudonym she used now. Um, but I, I remember reading, it was a very, very lengthy um, story all about this. And, you know, some of the complaints were just laughable that he poured her a glass of wine and he didn't even ask whether she liked red wine or white wine. Um, and you kind of thought, what? Come on, you know, you just say, actually, I don't like this. Do you not have red wine instead or whatever your preference is? Um, <laughs> but there, there was clearly a certain points where you thought, oh, yes, this is getting a little bit uncomfortable now. I can see why you um, were not happy with this situation. But I was reading it screaming in my head, you know, why don't you just leave? <laughs> he, he, there was no indication that he was kind of standing across the front door, um, you know, holding a gun, threatening her with violence, physically preventing her from leaving. You just think, why on earth don't you just get up and say, I'm calling a cab now, I'm going, goodbye, you know, and, and just walk out of the door. Um, and it was almost as if that mindset of I'm a victim had actually seeped so far into this, by all accounts, intelligent, middle class, young woman um, with a good lively career and social circle yet she'd become so imbued of this idea of herself as as a victim of um, male sexual harassment that she just wasn't able to exercise sufficient agency over her own life to actually get up and walk out of a situation that was clearly making her rightly or wrongly feel very uncomfortable and, uh, you know, I, I, that really sticks with me as just, just where this ends up leading us. I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you think you are a victim um, so much, if you really take on board that idea, um, then you the danger is you do end up becoming a victim because... I think people of my generation um, or, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of mid 40s now and I was kind of born and, and brought up in the northeast of England. I think we kind of learned to carry ourselves with a bit of um, swagger, <laughs> for want of a better word. You know, we we didn't walk around um, as if we were victims. We walked around with a little bit of toughness. And I think people in turn then respond to that and don't mess with us 
Whereas I think you've got a generation of young women growing up now who walk around as if they are victims. And I think the danger is that the world either responds to them in that way, or they interpret everything which isn't even a terribly victimizing situation as an, an inevitable example of the bad things that they just knew were in store for them. And I think some of these statistics and these surveys actually don't really tell us very much about sexual harassment at all. More what they reveal is the extent to which young women nowadays um, experience life as victims. So when you um, actually dig beneath these figures around like 97% of, of women have been sexually harassed, you, you realize there's no definition of sexual harassment. There's no objective set of things that might have happened to you. You know, nobody saying this, this and this is what defines sexual harassment. Sexual harassment is just being defined as um, have you ever um, or in the past five years been in a situation that made you feel uncomfortable and the problem is when when that is then broken down by respondents um the behaviors that they are describing the top kind of few behaviors that they're describing as these examples of situations that have made them feel uncomfortable um behaviors that they consider to be sexual harassment um being winked at um being whistled at having someone tell you to your face that you look attractive. And again, you know, maybe there's a generational thing, maybe I'm just old nowadays, but certainly I would not consider somebody winking at me, um, somebody whistling at me, or somebody telling me to my face, chance would be a fine thing, um, that they find me attractive. You know, I would not, for me, those would be things to either smile about, dare I say it, laugh at shrug my shoulders at and carry on with my day and they're not huge things that would lead me to think oh my god I'm a victim of sexual harassment I better go back home go back to bed and stay there for the entire day because my life's just now completely ruined but when you define sexual harassment so subjectively and so um so so broadly and so subjectively that's when you can come up with these ridiculous statistics that 97% of women are victims of sexual harassment. And the problem is, and in turn, you then get a generation of young women, teenage girls growing up today, who read this and who are then kind of told to assume that part and parcel of being female or being a woman is, is the experience of being sexually harassed almost as if if you're not being sexually harassed then you're not a woman that that becomes part of the definition of, of womanhood um and and like I said they then begin to see this as, as something which is just inevitably going to happen to them that they're kind of waiting for this to happen and and they then interpret every interaction that they have with a man through this this framework this prism of the sexual harassment that they know is just bound to be um, just just waiting to happen to them and and i think this like i say is just just debilitating really really unhelpful uh, attitude to give to young women growing up well what are the answers to this when we see some feminists advancing the notion of i've seen this a lot in the last two years believe the victim believe women women are always right if they say something 
And I'm thinking, whoa, um, I could sort of see when I started to witness this emergence of this rhetoric two years ago, that this gave all the material to the trans activists. I mean, they've basically taken from a lot of feminist toolboxes, the ability to speak about themselves in terms of the very same oppression, they just cut and paste it onto their narrative. And this is an accusation that feminists have faced that Basically, if males are de facto always guilty, and they're guilty of original sin by being part of the, quote, patriarchy, then there's a problem to understand how we can have a dialogue if we're just going to return to the church of the guilty or the saved. I'm thinking of Lawrence Fox and the accusations made against him. Then he sat down with a woman, a black British actor, I believe, and people got angry that she sat down and spoke to him. And I thought, well, this is what we should be doing. We should be having the kinds of discussions that he can explain what he meant, what he said, and what he means in the present tense. It's, it can't always be that we're going to deplatform Kevin Hart because he made some gay jokes in 1990 or something. I mean, let's let Kevin Hart host the Oscars because he's funny. And let's move up. Are we lacking forgiveness in our society in the sense that if feminists really want that the genderists stop the nonsense, stop forcing language on us, might we ought to concede that we ought to stop forcing guilt upon all men at birth, all males at birth? I tell you a backstory to this. <laughs> You'll laugh. A few years ago, I was invited to attend a feminist conference. It was somewhere in Scandinavia. And I said, sure, I have to organize. I might try to make it, um, but I, can I bring my children? And the response was, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is so funny. You can bring female children. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, my son is seven months old. And they said, no, because we want girls to feel free from rape culture. And I said, oh and I said, again, I repeat, he's seven months old. And I got slammed <laughs> on Facebook with accusations that, what do you mean that boys as young as four? I've read a case of a boy who was four who raped a girl. I'm like, are you on drugs? You know, like I was like, I want to take what you're taking because that's nuts. I said, first of all, there are cases of very young boys raping that four years old, but that's almost always in the case of coercion and themselves being victims of rape. But let's get back to reality here. I have a seven month child. Anyways, I wrote a piece about this, not naming names. And then someone wrote, a piece that was really crazy in response to mine, again, with a pseudonym. It was completely dismissive of anything I was saying. I was just, it was about me liking dick, pardon my language, but I was accused oh, of that. And oh. me being a handmaiden and me oh. not getting it. Like I'm anti-feminist and I'm thinking, um, shouldn't we be invested in raising boys to understand women's voices if we're going to follow through on the discussion <laughs> against the patriarchy wouldn't the reparation of the patriarchy implicate that we need to educate boys and men right no no it was insane so i started to see the cracks on that narrative and i'm not speaking about all feminists and it, it's certainly not even one faction but the reality is that there is this notion of original sin in the same way that the trans activists have labeled us cis because we are the fake women. They're the real women. They've perfectly inverted all of the victim narratives such that you and I oppress 
men, right? Because you yeah. talk about childbirth. You just mentioned your daughter. How many trans people have you sent to think about suicide? You see? <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, we, we've talked a lot over, um, you know, since we, we started this conversation about victimhood culture. Um, but I guess you can't have a victim unless you have an abuser. Um, and for all victimhood culture, I, I, you know, I still think is, is probably the best way of um, characterizing the society that we all live in at the moment. Um, the, the kind of corollary of that is, is abusers everywhere. If, if everyone's a victim, there must be an equivalent number of abusers. And so we have to keep on uh, turning up new uh, sources of abuse, finding new abusers for the rest of us, the good people, to define our victimhood against or to, to blame uh, or, or kind of locate as the source of our victimhood. So, you know, we've mentioned the um, school sex um, harassment scandal that, that's breaking in the UK at the moment. So the kind of abuse that you're getting out there, I mean, when and some of these examples have been talking about primary school age children. So this is a phenomenon known as peer to peer abuse. Now, this was something that was just never, ever talked about um, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, this is a new uh, kind of I'm not saying I'm not saying what's happening is new I don't think there's anything new in in what's happening at all in terms of the way children are, are behaving towards each other or I mean you know we can argue the toss on that but I think I think there's probably very little um that's that's new that's going on um what is new is the characterizing of it and the um giving it this label of peer-to-peer -peer abuse and kind of constructing, if you like, a new um, social problem. So again, to use a kind of very flippant example, so certainly I you know, go back to my own past and primary school days, you know, catchy kissies, um, kiss chase was a popular playground game. And suddenly by the time I was 10, we'd um, voluntarily, I must say, girls and boys, girls knowing completely what they were doing and obviously wanting to play this game. Nobody was coercing us into it. Uh, moved from um, catchy kissies to catchy lift up your shirt and show us what's underneath. Um, and this was kind of a game that we played, like I say, completely voluntarily. Um, but but nowadays that would be characterized as peer-to-peer -peer abuse. And if you know, if I think back to what I was saying earlier about um kind of teaching people to see themselves as victims, would never in a million years have occurred to me um when I was eight, nine, ten playing, catch you lift up your shirt and show us what's underneath, that I was in any way at all um a victim of peer-to-peer -peer abuse. But the, the problem is when we, you know, again, it was just one of those things that you just, we actually enjoy to, dare I say, playing. I'm probably people will listen to this and think I've got some internalized misogyny going on or some uh, unresolved um, sexual abuse that I need to go and have counseling to come to terms with. Uh, but I think the problem is when you tell young people when you give a, a problem when you identify a problem where there wasn't a problem before 
and you construct this problem by giving it this grand label of peer-to-peer -peer abuse and you tell young girls that they have been abused um, and tell young boys that they are abusers, um, you create this um, culture of, of, like I say, young girls seeing themselves as victims, young boys being labelled as, as harassers and abusers. And, and the problem is compounded then precisely by the points you're making um, in relation to forgiveness. We have a culture where, you know, I am now at the age of 47 supposed to dwell upon these eight, nine games that I played when I was eight, nine years old and um, get some kind of recovered memory of abuse. I'm supposed to think of that boy who I played these games with as being my abuser. And we, we never allow people to move on from um, these escapades. We expect them to become the defining characteristics of our life um, that have shaped us forevermore. And yeah, again, you know, I just think this is, is completely debilitating and it does create this culture that's stifling, um, that's suffocating, that, that again, nobody... It, it, it completely prevents people being able to actually exercise agency in a really positive way and take control in their lives and, and define themselves not by things that have happened to them, but by things that they've, they actually um, have, have done or want to do in the future. Are we giving in to the notion that victimhood is better than agency? Because agency seems to be something we've left outside the door of all discussions. And, you know, he heading back towards last summer's protests all over the United States that the British tried to cut and paste George Floyd in the UK, and that didn't sit very well, and it didn't last very long. Why do you think that it was quickly pushed asunder by many people, including people of colour in the UK? The George Floyd protests, you mean? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced it actually was. I mean, the thing that surprised me really was uh, precisely how much traction, um, the, if not specifically um, protests in relation to George Floyd, but the broader Black Lives Matter protests did gain in the UK. Um, so, you know, again, I'm, I'm talking a lot about my childhood and I can only apologize for that. I don't know why um, so many of your questions have got me thinking down that line. Uh, but the town I grew up in, um, Middlesbrough, in the northeast of England, um, it uh, had a very, very large uh, Pakistani heritage population. Um, there were lots of um, Asian families who lived around where I grew up, um, but not black um, people. There were no Afro-Caribbean people, or very, very few Afro-Caribbean families or Black African families. And I guess that's just a, a geographical, historical peculiarity. When people um, emigrate to a country, they want to be um, alongside uh, family and friends, and, and you get communities developing. So I guess the reason why I'm saying this is because the UK then has its own um, issues with racism. It has its own um, historical legacy uh, of colonies, but but we don't have the same history as the US. We don't have the same. We don't have the 
uh, same history of slavery, of Jim Crow, um, or even of, of the present day issues around race. Not, not, not to say we don't have our own issues, but we, we don't have um, the exact same history um, as the US has. So it kind of surprised me when I saw on a website for Middlesbrough, my hometown, a picture of all the, um, or, or certainly lots of people from, I think, kind of July last year, taking the knee outside the town hall in Middlesbrough uh, in response to the killing of George Floyd. I just thought, why? Why has this town that doesn't have this history, that has no connection to George Floyd, uh, that doesn't even have a, a big history of, of black people, um, certainly, you know, would be very, very uh, hard pushed to find an example of um, police mistreatment of black people, simply because, like I said, the, the population is largely Asian and Pakistani heritage not. Um, if there's not the sizable black population there. Um, and yet, you know, you've got this protest going on in that town and it just seemed a little bit strange. And when schools started um, back in September this year, you know, lots of schools up and down the UK were holding assemblies about Black Lives Matter, uh, telling pupils about George Floyd, um, were holding um, anti-racism training sessions with their members of staff, again, very much with the focus on Black Lives Matter. And, you know, it just, just seems kind of odd the extent to which that, that did take off here. You know, my feeling about the protests is that obviously people were feeling grievance last summer. I personally think a lot of the grievance was about the coronavirus about lockdowns, about economic precarity of so many people, not just in the US, we're seeing it in the UK as well. And yet this very same group of people, I'm thinking on the left, were the ones who were the most pro-lock, the most unvocal about the economic devastation, the physical devastation this wrought people. And I just, wonder why the left is absent in speaking out about the class issues. I mean, we're starting to see the trial in the US unfold. And I was quite upset to see the way it was presented. The jury selection, it came down to this, this little diagram of how many people were white, black, and mixed race. And I thought, is that where we are? Are we going to do another, is this going to be like OJ in the car chase sense of urgency that we're getting on American TV? On the other hand, why is this being cast as this? Because what we know is that police violence seems to be the problem here. And I fear that we're not addressing the issues that have everything to do with class. And so go back to someone uh, on this podcast, in fact, who said it's, uh, it's interesting how the very people claiming to be oppressed are the very ones making money from being oppressed. And they're often white and they're often like scholars and people in posh editorial positions. And I think of Owen Jones, who can go off about everything that's wrong with the world, but he benefits from this. And there seems to be a circularity of economics happening here where you can be the next D'Angelo and you can write a book about how to train me and my staff to being woke 
So CNN runs a piece last year about a CEO, I think it was American Airlines, taking a flight somewhere and his discussion he had with a black stewardess on the plane. And that was supposed to be our heartwarming understanding that he too acknowledges white guilt. And so the, all of this becomes a very medieval form of public confession and everyone's allowed to say, you know what, trans women are women. Everyone has to apologize constantly. It's exhausting. In a way, yeah. I think the only thing good about lockdown is I don't have to see these people in real life. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know? And, and so I just, I feel like a lot of, you know, the idea that we always have to have an oppressor and we always have to be oppressed, there needs to be a way out of this. You know, what is your think tank, Kyo? do in terms of addressing some of this? Because I know you came out with a great report on the transgender phenomenon. Just to get back to some of the things that you're saying, first of all, I mean, I think it's been a very interesting phenomena over the past year um, to have lived through this experience, horrible, horrible experience of lockdown, kind of a grand social experiment that we've all been um, victims in. And I'm, I can't speak to what's been going on in other countries, I'm afraid, but I think it's very, very interesting that both lengthy periods of lockdown that we've had in the UK, we've had two very major long periods of lockdown, one stretching from about March to um, late June last year, and one from end of December that we're still just really coming out of, of now. This very, very interesting that really what has broken these lockdowns in both instances above and beyond kind of change of policy direction, uh, change of government um, direction or anything, has been these protests exactly as you identify. So um, back in July last year, it was the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, this year, we've just seen the um, Sarah Everard vigils and, and protests. And then, as you say, protests in response to the police reaction to the protest. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that is a very, very interesting phenomenon to try and unpick and to try and work out, you know, why, why has this happened? Um, on the one hand, you know, there's something kind of quite reassuring about it, oddly reassuring, that, um, you know, even for all these people who are very, very pro-lockdown, the, the, the pro-lockdown left, there clearly is um, somewhere quite fundamental, uh, a quite fundamental human instinct to want to be with other people, um, you know, now after it seems we can take kind of two, three months of isolation, but then you reach a breaking point where you feel some need to um, go and stand alongside in public other people. I mean, obviously not all of us, not everyone, but, but significant numbers of people. But I think what's interesting, and this speaks to the point you're making around class, is that there's only some causes that are seen as legitimate um, reasons for doing this. So what was very, very interesting um, with the Black Lives Matter protest, and, and again, we saw the same argument used around the Sarah Everard vigils, was that the, the kind of organizers, the people who were behind these protests would say, you know, we do recognize that coronavirus is a, a very big threat. We do recognize that we're not advocating breaching lockdown. You know, we're not questioning all the restrictions that we're living under. But we think that racism is just as big a virus or, or you know, we think that, that racism and sexism, these are actually even bigger problems that we're facing. 
And so um, we are prepared to sacrifice our health. In fact, we're even prepared to sacrifice our lives to go out and um, protest against these issues. Um, so I think, you know, that's what the left has done, if you like. They've said that it's not legitimate to go out and protest against lockdown. You know, then if you do that, you're a COVID-iot, the horrible expression that's been coined in the UK. You know, you're, you're a moron, you're thick, you're somebody who um, is a, a coronavirus denier. And also, it's not legitimate to go out and protest against the fact that you, you've been furloughed for 10 months on 80% of your salary or that you're going to lose your job or that you're facing unemployment. You know, those are not legitimate issues to protest about. Um, again, I think some of this comes back to what we were talking about earlier to do with agency and perhaps to do with the role of the individual. If you go out and protest that you want more freedom um, or that you don't want to be unemployed or that you want to keep your job or you, you want, dare I say it, better pay and better conditions, you're written off as being self selfish. You know, you're just fighting for your own interests. Um, whereas if you go on a Black Lives Matter protest or on a Sarah Everard vigil, then you're um, morally worthy because you're well, you're self-sacrificing. You're even prepared to risk your life in the interests of um, a cause that's not about yourself. And I think that's one of the very, very worst things that the left has done um, is demonizing self-interest. I don't, I, and I think that's one of the reasons why lockdown has been so successful and why lockdown has been so supported by the left because they're kind of amazing feat that they pulled off right back this time last year was to say that um, lockdown was a selfless act. It was an act of self-sacrifice, which, you know, is just the most bizarre stupid thing you can say because what they're essentially saying is is staying at home is a political act of solidarity staying at home is an act of self-sacrifice but of course what that means is that if you have a beautiful big house with a lovely garden and enough money to get uh, a constant supply of online um food deliveries and all kinds of book deliver whatever you want delivered to your door um, you have a very nice experience of lockdown. You have a job you can do um, working from home, sitting in front of a laptop. You know, it's not a bad life. And yet they have twisted it to present that as being the act of selflessness. You know, that's what the good people do. Whereas the people who um, are living with three, four children in a two bedroom council flat on the 13th floor of a block of flats without a garden, um, you know, without a job that can be done working from home, um, facing unemployment, struggling to home educate children under those circumstances and decide they want to go out and sit on a bench or go and sit on a beach or in a park. You know, they're the COVIDians. They're the selfish people. They're the ignorant people. And this is this is really sick. I mean, this is just awful um thing that the left has done but but i think that kind of tells you everything you need to know really about left-wing politics nowadays and and what happens when you remove class from conversations um but as to what to do about this i mean you know i think 
these are such huge questions. I don't think there are any easy answers. I mean, I'm I'm very much in favour of of more democracy at, at every available opportunity. And I think one of the big problems with this year, um, and you see it in these um, stories about sexual harassment, um, very much so, is that we've taken the majority of people out of all opportunity to engage in public discussion. So we have uh, we see we see so much journalism nowadays, for example, that's dominated by what people have written on Twitter. You know, I think this is the laziest um, excuse for journalism imaginable. Sit in your office, sit in your bedroom and find out what people are saying about something on Twitter, screenshot it and dress it up with a few comments before and after and pretend this is journalistic research. You're not. You're just looking into an echo chamber and reflecting back what that echo chamber has thrown up. Um, but I think the problem is that politicians do it as well. Um, they tape Twitter as being the public square, uh, and it's absolutely not. Um, and you see in the cases of, of um, the sexual harassment stories, you know, because lots of women put out there their story of, of being groped or even horribly raped or sexually harassed or sexually abused. This is then seen as being the experience of all women. You know, this is seen as being, this must be the dominant experience of womanhood because there are so many stories about it. But what nobody ever does is take a step back and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, whose voices are we hearing in this debate? You know, we are hearing the voices of women who have the luxury of time and a laptop, essentially, women who have all day to sit in front of a laptop compiling their stories and putting them out there on social media. Though the woman who's working two jobs, who's looking after three children and cleaning a house and looking after uh, elderly relatives, um, who's struggling to make ends meet, you know, she doesn't have the time to say, well, do you know what, I'll just pull out my laptop, log on to Twitter and tell the world about all my sexual harassment experiences. It's not to say she doesn't have bad experiences, but or, you know, necessarily to say that she has good experiences. But but the point I'm making is that you have a small number of um, very middle class, I think, voices that absolutely dominate debate in this country on on every single issue and are, are taken by policymakers, by politicians, by journalists as, as being the representative voice. And I think, you know, if I could do anything with my think tank, and I'm, I'm not pretending that we're, we're doing this at all, but what I, would, what I would like to do, what I would hope to do, would be to um, create some kind of opportunity or space. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how you, you go about doing this necessarily, but we need to get more voices into public debate. We need to get the public into public debate. We need to get more opinions heard. We need to break out of these um, media echo chambers, social media echo chambers, political um, think tank echo chambers, uh, focus group echo chambers, you know, and, and actually hear more um, from regular people who are, are laughing at these experiences as, as not representing their lives at all.